Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, Lesson 12 on the truth of our faith, on speaking in tongues, and on magic. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of the divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant us also fear of thy blessed commandments. And travel down all kind of desires, and we are the spiritual man of living, both thinking and doing such things will please unto thee. Thou the illumination of our souls and bodies with Christ our God, and the instant of glory, the virgin of your Father, the Holy Good and Life, creating spirit. Well, now and ever unto ages of ages. Amen. Ebloigitosi Christeo Theosi Mon O Pansofus Tu Salis Sanadixas Catapemsas Aftis To Pnevma To Agion Gediapton Tinicumeni saginevsas filantro pedoxasi. Amen. All right. So let's go to our screen. And we're going to be talking, before we get into the topic tonight, the first topic, of course, is speaking in tongues. Do you ever, have you ever heard of the Toronto Blessing? Anybody ever heard of the Toronto Blessing? You can give me a little shout out, yes, no, but I'm just going to give you a short introduction. This is, a, this is supposedly, according to CBNnews.com, at least some people believe it's the greatest thing that happened in the church in the last hundred years. So there are plenty of people here now. After 20 years, this happened in 1994. Went on for years, supposedly. I'm not, apparently, I'm not really sure when it ended. Uh, if, it, if it did end, if it just kind of goes on in spurts or something. But uh, there are there are hundreds of thousands of people in the Protestant <coughs> sectarian uh, groups, uh, Pentecostals, Charismatics, the people who really are behind the questions that we're going to hear tonight to Elder Cleopa. The missionaries who believe in the so-called gifts of the Holy Spirit and all the rest. Uh, there are gifts of the Holy Spirit, of course, but they're not the kind that you're going to see in this video. But so they thought they thought this is the, one of the greatest things that ever happened. Let's see, what is this Toronto blessing? So this is a charismatic Pentecostal kind of event. Just follow along with me. I want to put everything in context here because just to see how far people have fallen from the basic gospel message. Began January 20th, 1994. You couldn't walk straight. People don't know what to do. Some called it unusual. Just get so full that they're just wow. I carried her home. Others called it interesting. Their lives are totally transformed. You lived through it. It was unprecedented. And because of it, hundreds of thousands of people drew to a city, a church, to experience the Toronto Blessing. called birthing. So, so some people are acting like they're giving birth. 
Otherwise, others are soaked in prayer. Others can't control themselves. They're laughing beyond. They can't stop laughing. I want to read from from Luke chapter one. Some of you think that I don't give readings. I've been going through different stages of drunkenness and the stage I'm at at the moment is slouching. people who are Father, like most of all help me to feel the turn that of off God. hang on a second help Sophie father to feel the love that these two wonderful there you go okay uh, this is supposedly a manifestation of the Holy Spirit supposedly and uh, let's hear what the patristic teaching is on this You all were able to see that fine, right? Okay, obviously you're commenting on it. Yeah, it is demonic. Of course it's demonic. When in the... I mean, it's it's immediately apparent that it's demonic, but I mean, if you need somebody to prove it to you, um, of course the teaching of the church makes it apparent why it's not, uh, it's not true. Uh, but... Uh, the, the simple fact that in 2,000 years of church tradition and history, when we've had great spirit-bearing, wonder-working saints, did we ever see anything the likes of that? Can it, can it be shown that any saint or anybody uh, from the apostles on barked and laughed uncontrollably and that was a sign of the Spirit of God? So these people, this is the great tragedy the great tragedy of Protestantism is they've thrown off holy tradition, they've thrown off church history, and so they are totally, entirely open up to the demonic because they have no way, no, no collective memory, no check on, uh, on experiences that, that come to them. Uh, and uh, so there's no, there's no way to, to fight back. I mean, if somebody were to stand up there and say, look, this doesn't, this can't be of God because look, nobody's ever done this in church history. People would people would look at them like, what's church history, and why why do we have to pay attention to you? So there's no checks, there's nothing, there's no discernment, everything's just um, 
thrown open to emotions and uh, everything that is spiritual is interpreted as the spirit of God. Of course, we know there are many things, many spirits in the air, the demonic spirits that do not bring about theosis. And of course, the most obvious response would be, how does this lead one to union with God and theosis? Uh, when, what is the likeness of God here? Does anybody see any likeness of God? Did, did anything remind you of Christ in these, uh, in these experiences? Uh, so there's just no discernment whatsoever. And it's really tragic. And we will see, uh, when the time of the Antichrist, we'll see tremendous signs, tremendous signs and miracles uh, by the Antichrist. Uh, and people who like this, apparently hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who say they follow Christ, they will be deceived. They will have no way to determine and, and judge that this is not of God. And uh, yes, it is tragic. We talked about in our other course last week that Nietzsche was rejecting heterodoxy and not Christ because he didn't know Christ, he didn't have experience of Christ. And this is exactly what happens here. Millions and millions of people who are rational, uh, probably rationalists, and so they've, they've gone to the other extreme of, of exalting their rational intellect beyond its purpose and scope and, and, and um, nature. But in any case, they're rational, they're not irrational people. And they look at this and they say, this can't be... There's no God that I want that does this. And so you have the two extremes, and of course, no, neither are on the path of salvation. The royal path is always the path that we follow. And we uh, have the, 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 the measure of the Holy Fathers. So let's go to one of our Holy Fathers, the Elder Cleopa, one of the last great flowering uh, examples of the flowering of the Hesychastic tradition in Romania who's going to give us the probably the most basic and uh, grounded response to the glossolalia, although there is a more, what can we call it, uh, I don't know, it's still patristic, but it's uh, looking at it more deeply from the, from the perspective of prayer, and I don't think Elder Cleopa would have disagreed, I just didn't use those, uh, aspects of the tradition to counter the heretical teaching. Uh, he's following St. John Chrysostom for the most part it looks like <clears throat> in his interpretation of seeing that what we're talking about in terms of Glossalia is what strictly speaking is just a an ability to speak various languages for the sake of the spreading of the gospel and that's the most basic uh, response to Glossalia. But if you wanted a more, uh, more involved response, you could read a book by then higher monk, now Bishop Alexis of Caracalu, called In Peace Let Us Pray to the Lord. And this was his attempt to answer, I think his mother actually, his mother was a Pentecostal. And I think she actually became Orthodox at the end of the day, I'm not sure. But he, is, uh, he was at Caracalu Monastery in Manathos, then recently he was made a bishop of the OCA. And... Uh, Unfortunately, he, he's become a defendant of all the measures. Um, but he's a very good man, and uh, he helped, uh, helped us in our publications back in the day. Uh, he was a translator of uh, patristic theology by uh, Father John Romanides. 
And uh, if you look at his church, Sinners and Civilizations, or you look at uh, Father Alexis in Peace, Let Us Pray to the Lord, I don't know if that's still in circulation or not. Uh, you can see there a more involved response to the instances referred to in Corinthians. Elder Cleopa doesn't get into those in, in our in our text much. Uh, he does, he, had, he references, but he doesn't get into the more detailed passages and an analysis of patristic analysis. So let's begin our our, our review here. Um, just what is this speaking in tongues from the Orthodox perspective? Obviously, we're going to go back to the scriptures. We're going to go back to the first instance of it, and that was in the Acts of the Apostles. You can see an image here on the left uh, from the dome of, I don't know what church, I've forgotten, I've forgotten what church this is from, but it shows Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, the event of Pentecost, and the tiry fun, uh, tongues coming down, and the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit being communicated to the Apostles. And those gathered. And it happened to be, because people were there for the feast from all over, the Jews from all over the Mediterranean had come for the feast. So there were people from all over the Jewish diaspora, the Jewish world, coming into Jerusalem. And the Lord, of course, allows for this precisely for two reasons, to spread the gospel, uh, this gathering of all these different people from different parts of the empire, and also to show forth the nature of the unity in Christ, which happens uh, through Pentecost, through the descent of the Holy Spirit. And what, is this, what does this remind us of? It's a, it reminds us of the opposite, which happened in the Old Testament, which is the Babylon and the, and the uh, confusion of the tongues, right? When it says in Scripture there that they were trying to build a, temp a, a temple and a tower, uh, rather a tower to go all the way up to heaven and, and, and as if it were overcome the fall just like the uh, demonic uh, suggestion to Adam and Eve they can be like God without obedience and love for God and now the, something similar has been inspired the devil has inspired the people to band together and build a tower and of course the Lord comes down and confuses the tongues and we have the dispersion of the various peoples and this image of Babylon, um, interesting America, it's an interesting development history. If you look at back in Babylon, you look at America, I mean, there are not a few people here in Greece who call America the new Babylon, in the sense that you have people from all over the world now who have, bound, have come together as immigrants. They've now spoken the same tongue, English, and English is kind of the global language. And they've built... Uh, you know, a materialistic uh, heaven on earth, and at least that's that's what they've hoped to done. You know, have done uh, that. That dream, the American dream, may well come to an end very soon in our lifetime, uh, in terms of its you know unity, the unity of America and all the rest. It looks like things are not going well. But uh, it's interesting in history, that whole theme is really important, right? To understand Babylon, Pentecost, end times, all of that. Uh, if you go into the scriptural commentary, you go into the Fathers, it's extremely interesting, extremely important to understand that what the church has brought. So on Pentecost, the Lord brings unity to all the nations in him, in the church, without doing away with the the uniqueness and the identity of all the peoples of the earth. He brings about 
the unity in the church through the Holy Spirit, the descent of the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of that, for the sake of the quick spread of the gospel and the overcoming of the pagan delusions, is the gift of speaking in tongues. So let's read what the elder has to say. It is an ability to speak a foreign language without having been taught it or knowing it beforehand. By the way, do we have any hist- do we have any examples of Pentecost throughout history, church history? Actually, we have several. The most prominent one was with St. Basil and St. Ephraim of Syria. St. Basil the Great, they met. Of course, St. Ephraim did not speak Greek. And St. Basil did not speak Syrian, but they were able to speak together. They, they sat and talked and spoke together at length. We have those examples in our own day. We have examples uh, in the life of Elder Paisius, St. Paisius the Athenite, where he did not, could not speak, uh, but sat down and spoke at length with someone uh, who did not know Greek. Uh, I've heard stories of Elder Ephraim doing the same thing. And so uh, this is one of the gifts that abides in the church. When necessary, the Lord allows for this to take place for the sake of the uh, conversion and, and salvation of the world. But it's precisely that, not, being, not knowing a language, but able to be able to communicate by God, God's grace. Somebody said, well, how does this work? What's the me- mechanism, me- mechanism of it all? Well, only, one can only speculate is whatever God determines, but um, I suppose each one speaks in their own language. In other words, they don't, they speak as they've always spoke, but the other one hears that which is being spoken in their own language. That's just my speculation of how things work. And so it's kind of like God translates it in, in live time or what do they call it, uh, you know, without um, delay. And, um, but in any case, uh, that's something that's happened. Uh, we've had examples of that throughout church history. So it's not just on the day of Pentecost, but that was the purpose. Purpose is for the spreading of the gospel. By the way, the purpose of everything Christ did when he was walking on this earth was our salvation. And the purpose of everything that he does in the church is our salvation. So that's a criterion, right? The sociological criterion for all things in the church. If you're, you, if you're examining something in the church, you say, is this of God? Is this of the church? One of the first things you say is, is this salvific? Does it save? Does it come up, bring about salvation? Or is it serving a purpose which is purely worldly, which is purely, uh, you know, um, not salvific, not directly related to, to the gospel and the economy of salvation? Then you got you got to wonder whether it's of God and of the church, even though it's in the church among people of the church. When things are diverted from that heavenly aim and become just earthly and worldly, then there's every right on the part of the faithful to doubt. When you see bishops, for instance, walking with BLM or something, you know, that's that's a problematic thing. What, what's that all about? There is that that is that a part of the salvific. Message and work of the of the church, uh, especially when there's Marxist elements and all these kind of insane positions on the part of BLM. Is that something that the church is that is that bringing about salvation? How is that helping people on the path of salvation? That's what we have to wonder and ask. So that's what he's doing here. He's doing this, bringing this about. Speaking of languages, miraculously, precisely to spread the gospel, bring salvation to the world. And that's one of the criteria. So that 
The text is pretty am- unambiguous, right? Elder Cleopa quotes from the text. Maybe we just refresh our memory here and read the text to kind of situate us. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Uh, just a parenthesis here. This is a very important phrase, by the way, for ecclesiology. All of you who love ecclesiology and who are looking forward to the class in the spring, when we're going to talk about ecclesiology, this phrase I'm going to unpack because it's filled with meaning. The one place in Greek essentially means the Eucharistic synaxis, the one place. And the one accord are the presuppositions for communion, right? Uh, one mind, one heart, one faith, one baptism, like St. Basil talks about. So you might pass by that really quickly and say, oh, okay, they're all together they're in one place. That's nice. But actually the fathers unpack that quite a bit and show that this is much deeper than what you might initially think. It's talking about the presuppositions and the Eucharist. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven, uh, as of a rushing, so that's the context of Pentecost. Let me repeat that. So the context of Pentecost is what? Eucharistic synaxis in the Orthodox faith. That's what's why I, why I stopped there and made the point I, uh, to drive it home. That's the presupposition here. And in that context, then we have the working out of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you go back to Toronto blessing and every Toronto blessing and every charismatic Pentecostal gathering. Is that the presupposition for those gatherings? No, of course not. They've rejected the Eucharist and they've rejected the faith. They've not been a part of the Orthodox faith. So right off the bat, we as Orthodox Christians reject that and say they have not fulfilled the presuppositions for the Holy Spirit of God to be working amongst them in terms of internally working out the salvation, illumination, the efficacy. Now, the Holy Spirit works in all of creation to bring people to God, but not in the way it works in the church, which which has presuppositions and is uh, the energies of, the, of purification, illumination, and deification. That happens only in the church, and this is what's happening on Pentecost, of course. Pentecost is about the purification, illumination, and deification of the world and of, of everyone there. Um, so they heard, there came a sound from heaven as of a ru- rushing, mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. Were there actually tongues of fire? No. It says like as of fire. So there, this is the description of what they saw, which was in a spiritual event. Not a physical uh, earthly fire, but a divine fire. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the, the idea here that the, the Spirit of God is giving them the ability to speak gibberish is, is almost blasphemous. Like why, what, What's the point? Meaningless, pointless gibberish, as we saw in the video, obviously is not what's happening here on Pentecost. Let's, see, let's go further, and it's very clear what's happening. It has nothing to do with that gibberish. Um, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak with tongues, other tongues. And of course... That's the term in, uh, in Greek for languages, right? That's synonymous with languages. When you say speak another tongue, they mean another language. It's not some other sounds that come through the tongue, but a language that's 
that's rational. Like you can actually speak it, and people understand you. Uh, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. It's very clear what's going on here. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, <coughs> Judea, in Cappadocia, in Pontus, in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt, parts of Libya, about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, the Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, couldn't get you almost. Covering the entire empire, essentially, here. I mean, spattering from the entire empire. And we do hear them speak in our tongues, our languages, the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying, one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Interesting, the, the interpretation of Elder Cleopa here, as we'll see. Who were those other men, and why were they mocking? We'll see what, that has, what, said, what he has to say there. So they're, they're speaking the wonderful works of God, of course, the, the whole economy of salvation, they're preaching the gospel to these people and all their languages, are, they're hearing them in all, each of them in their own language. So do you, the, the, apostles weren't, the apostles weren't speaking themselves 15 different languages at once, they were speaking in their language and they were being understood, it says. We hear every man in our own tongue. It's clear that God is, as it were, translating them into their own tongue to understand what they're saying. Now, here's something. Here's a question that Elder Cleopatra doesn't bring up, but I, I'll bring it up. I would say to our Pentecostal, uh, charismatic, good-willed friends, if you have any, or if you have people who are in your family who are perhaps still in this sectarian, heretical, uh, heterodox group. Um, so you believe that God speaks gibberish and people interpret the gibberish. Okay. Where is the gift of speaking actually in tongues? Shouldn't you at least have that as well? You, if we accept that there's maybe other ways to interpret this, amongst your speaking in tongues, folks, shouldn't there be one who actually knows other languages? Shouldn't there also be that gift? Why isn't that gift among you? Uh, I've never heard it being among you. I used, when I was... Uh, in the pro-life movement before I became Orthodox in, the, in college, I would go to these meetings and gatherings of pro-life people and there would always be prayer beforehand, right? And, and gatherings. And there were Pentecostals and charismatic uh, papal Protestants, right? There, that's one of the interesting things about pro-life work in America is it's kind of a grassroots ecumenism, uh, which a lot of people are goodwill. They're not really about abandoning their faith at all, but they they're naive and they're working for this uh, greater, you know, social, against this greater social evil. And so they bound, they bind to get, bound together, work together, papal Protestants, reformed Protestants and all the different uh, groups. And so there's, and a lot of them are charismatic Pentecostal types and they do this, these kinds of uh, worship. But, uh, and so you, I remember, there, I don't remember ever seeing or hearing even that, oh yeah, look at this gift that they received. They were able to speak, in, and people in different languages heard them. 
and there were people from Mexico, and there were people from, I don't know, from speaking French and, you know, whatever. No, you never hear that. That's not one of the gifts, but it's the only gift that, that you see here in the gospel. So what's going on here? Why are, we, why are we not at least having that gift, if you're really of the, of the apostles? So we can deduce the following according to the elder that it manifested itself as a miracle for the first time in history. It was an overturning of Babylon. It makes perfect sense in the theology of the church. This was an overturning of Babylon where all the nations of the people were scattered and, and unity was lost between them. Now everything is unified again in God, in the Spirit, uh, in the uh, coming down of God and dwelling among men as opposed to men trying to ascend their own power, the religions of the world, right? What are the religions of the world? They're the Tower of Babylon. They're the Tower of Babylon again. They're an attempt to ascend without God, without His revelation, without His teaching to God and claiming that they have. And it's, uh, of course, the scriptures say that all the gods of the nations are demons, meaning that they're false gods they're not of they're not god's revelation so they they were this is the first time in history it's the overcoming of babylon pentecost the unity of the, of the world in the church the apostles preach in other languages or are heard preaching in other languages as it says the 15 different local languages of other tribes and nations that converge there for the feast of pentecost and they hear the apostles preach in their own language. Um, this is what the miracle is all about. This is what it's all about right there. That's the essence of it. Um, so it says here, as we said earlier, there's, how do we interpret those people who mock them? Among the listeners of the preaching... There were also some who did not understand anything that the apostles said and subsequently mocked the apostles, thinking that they were drunk. This group could be none other than the residents of Jerusalem and perhaps those of nearby Palestine who did not know the other languages except their mother tongue, Aramaic. For these men, the preaching of the apostles was completely unintelligible and they considered it simply gibberish. So it's precisely... Those who could not understand the languages who say it's gibberish. The, the non-understanding, not the understanding. Uh, thus the residents did not understand anything from the preaching unless someone translated it for them. For just as there is a gift of speaking in tongues in foreign languages, there's also gifts of translation. And this was given, as is apparent below, when those listening were only locals ignorant of other languages, as was, for example, the case in Corinth. In Jerusalem, however, during this period, there was not felt this deficiency. The gift of translation was itself also miraculous, just as was that of Gosalalia, on which it was directly dependent. Not having this gift, the residents who were listening judged the work of the apostles according to their personal judgment and perception alone. Gosalalia is a sign of the power of God, and a decisive means of evangelism was manifested among men who ignored the faith. For apart from this, what meaning does it have for someone to speak about Christ in a foreign language if he was taught, believed, and lived his faith in Christ from his childhood years? So he's saying, 
look, this gift is for a time. It was for the beginning of the, of the spread of the gospel as a manifestation to pagans who would have probably had a very hard time, uh, I'm sorry, not pagans, to Jews from different parts of the world, but also then in Corinth. Uh, and it was a particular event the Lord intervened for the sake of the spread of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. Now he's saying, look, now that everybody in the Orthodox Church here in Romania, let's say, they all speak uh, the same language and they've been raised in the faith, why would there be this gift? Why would there be this gift in Romania? We all speak Romanian, we're all Orthodox, we've been baptized as small children, just 90, 90%, 98% of the people in Romania or whatever, 95, because you have some uh, Latins and uh, Austrians in, in Transylvania. They speak uh, the same language, they've been raised in the faith. What's the point? What's the point? Of course, of course, what's the point? What was the point of that thing you saw in the beginning of this, this Toronto blessing? What was the point? So, the purpose of Glossolalia was for the apostles to be able to spread through the transmission of the Kirig by the preaching in foreign language, the faith of Christians to all people and make the gospel known throughout the world as is written. Their sound hath gone forth into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. We have that at the, the Feast of All the Apostles. And, the, and to just to put this in context again, the apostle remind, the elder reminds us of the apostle's words that there are greater gifts. And one is prophecy. One is speaking the truth. That's what prophecy means, by the way. People think prophecy only means the speaking the future. It doesn't. Prophecy means speaking the truth to this generation. The prophets were killed because they spoke the truth to the generation. And they didn't want to hear the truth. They weren't killed because they, they prophesied the future. That wasn't the, the problem why they were killed. That wasn't the motivation for killing them. But they, they, they countered the powers that be at the time. The leaders of the Jewish people who were in apostasy, they countered them. They called them to accountability and they were killed. Most of the prophets were killed. Prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. Think about that. Think about that. Why the Lord says, your fathers killed the prophets. So, there's a greater thing. And speaking the truth is much greater than speaking in tongues. Speaking the truth prophetically to the people. And that the church may be edified. So obviously, if people are speaking, as you saw in the beginning of the video, gibberish, going on and on, <laughs> it's not for edification, it's not for the spreading of the gospel. Uh, it's just phenomenal that there are hundreds of thousands, not millions of people in, in, in Latin America. For everybody who's, who's with us from Latin America, I think we have some people in Brazil and down in Panama. There's a huge number of formerly Roman Catholics, Pentecostals, probably the largest group in Latin America of Christians, I think, the largest, fastest growing, who have embraced all this so-called spirituality. It's such a tragedy. Yeah, we have our friend from Mexico. Yes, how are you doing, Jeff? Uh, God have mercy. They have a big Pentecostal charismatic group down there, Jeff, in uh, Mexico. Is that a big uh, deal? Are there a lot of 
former papal Protestants who embraced the charismatics? Yes, yes, Jeff says, yes. Something about that, why is that? Why? Do, I guess they want to experience, right? They want to experience more the Spirit of God, and that's why they're drawn to that. I think that's the uh, Mediterranean blood in them. People want experience in the Mediterranean, right? So the gifts of prophecy, the preaching, interpretation of Scripture are much higher than the gifts of Gosalalia, because with these the Church of Christ is built up and benefited much more than with the gift of speaking different languages. And of course, love, love is the highest and everything leads to that. It is incomprehensible, he says, for a healthy, clear, and well-balanced intellect to reveal the great mysteries of God with inarticulate exclamations. What would Elder Cleopa have said if he saw the Toronto blessings? I wonder if he saw that, because he was alive... In the, until the 99, I think he reposed. What would he have said? Oh my goodness. Such a thing is not at all the same as we know from that which revealed to us as a gift. So, reminds us of the Greek idol worship of antiquity with the inarticulate babblings same thing happened with the Montanists, the ancient heretics. And then he says we have the same thing with the Methodists and the Quakers and the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. They're in delusion. And they lead other people in delusion, the unsuspecting, cheating them with the words taken even from Scripture. So the demons know Scripture. They know it better than anybody. They know it better. They know it by heart. And they quote whenever is necessary to cover the delusion. So then our, our inquirer comes back with more delusion. Uh, of course, he's, he's relaying questions people are giving him probably. But. And he asked, uh, well, they maintain unbroken the work of the Holy Spirit among men and within the church. That's what people say. And this is a perceptible sign of the gift of grace. This is how we know there still exists the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And, uh, you know, take that, take these images and of charismatic speaking in tongues, gibberish, and then just, just put that, just suppose that, and put it right next to the life of St. Paisios, who really had spirits, uh, gifts of the Spirit, or Elder Frem, or, or any number of the contemporary saints who had gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's all one has to do. That's, that's our mission to the Pentecostals. Read and look at what it means. What, what does it really mean to have a gift of the Holy Spirit? Let's read. Take the life of the Elder Paisos and we'll see. Uh, again, he says it's not, it's not given for all time. It's for the early mission of the church. Apostle Paul said these will come to an end. Uh, it was an economy for that time. They, they needed it to get out of their delusion and confusion. Uh, it is a visible sign, but there are more important things. St. Paul says, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. So now he's talking about the Corinthian manifestation of tongues and what's going on there. And that's where uh, Bishop, uh, now Bishop uh, Alexis' in interpretation would be interesting. If anybody wants to go further and do more further research and understand, uh, he says it's connected to the Jesus prayer, actually. 
and it's sounds that can be uttered and things like that. There's there's various references in Corinthians that lead us to understand that this is a gift of unceasing prayer, actually, in Corinthians. In Corinth. But I'm not going to be going into that whole explanation. It's too far fetched for us for too, too much time. So those who want to explore this deeper, they can get that book. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. Or read Father John Romanini's, uh, who doesn't give an example, extended uh, treatment in church synods, civilizations. Uh, so he's saying the first Christians would not have believed if they had not received signs. So that was the purpose there in time. He says again, our inquirer, but the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is a gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire. Uh, which is totally different from the baptism of water. So here's another delusion of the Protestants. They divide that gift of the Holy Spirit and fire from the gift of the baptism given in baptism. So they divide essentially initiation of the church from Pentecost. They're not one and the same. So chrismation is not our personal Pentecost, essentially. right? Uh, because that those things go together, right? It's, it's, it's all a part of the initiation. We're baptized, chrismated, and communed all together in the same day. And so it's, a, it's the initiation into the Eucharistic assembly where the Holy Spirit is poured out. He says, this inquirer, this baptism showers upon them various miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially that of the of Gosolier interpretation of Scripture. And the other says, is it possible there are two baptisms? Does it not say that there's only one baptism in Scripture? Does not Paul say, one Lord, one faith, one baptism? The baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire of Pentecost is none other than the Christian baptism that was pre-announced by both St. John the Baptist and Savior himself, in which he said it would happen by water and the Spirit. So the same event. Now, is everyone prepared and receives manifestly the gifts of the Holy Spirit when they're baptized, chrismated, and communed? No. That's why you'll hear me talk a lot about, for you catechumens out there, for you inquirers, it's really important that you have a thorough catechumenate, that you work hard to be purified of old habits, old ideas, heretical ideas, heretical ways of thought, worldly ways of thought, fleshy ways of living. You take your time and do it right. You prepare yourself thoroughly, not just reading a book or two. This is because that day of, of initiation, Pentecost, and the Eucharistic synaxis, that day is, is your initiation. And if you're sufficiently prepared and purified, you'll have a manifestly different experience of that event, as has been shown forth again and again, many examples we have many examples of people who had such events and such manifestations. Now, it's, it's not all dependent on our purification and preparation, but obviously the Lord responds to our zeal and love. He responds to our the, uh, determination, our fasting, our prayer, our self-denial. Of course, that plays a huge role, not in the sense that we bring it about, but we allow it to happen. We open the door, we get out of the way, all the negative things are removed, and so it's so important that the, for the manifest presence of God to be felt and to be witnessed to, 
we have to get out of the way, right? We have to make sure that we're not obstructing it with our passions and our worldly way of life and our worldly way of thinking. So there are two elements, one baptism, one visible and another invisible. But the mystery is one and only one and his two elements are inseparable, spiritual and physical. The inquirer comes back and says, okay, but... uh, the Orthodox don't really show any signs. Uh, let's see what he says. Each Christian should have within him the Holy Spirit. The members of a certain Christian brotherhood say that while they can give evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit within them, through the practice of the speaking in tongues, the Orthodox are not able to show this by any means. So that's they're dueling with us. They're coming and saying, look, we, we'll pull out our spiritual manifestations. Here we have this... supposedly the gift of speaking in tongues is gibberish uh and you don't have that gift so you're not true so that's 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 the uh piecemeal heretical way of trying to figure out the truth right yes experientially it's important that we understand we experience the truth and it's manifestly uh present uh in the gifts of god but that's for those who are made worthy that's for those who god determines by his providence and of course all of those presuppose orthodox faith orthodox tradition orthodox life and so he's this heretics have no context they have no tradition they have no history they have no memory of church history of what what the church has done the lord has done throughout church history as it's saying and so they come to the table just with one aspect just just the experiential say and throw it down and say well we have experience and of course we're going to respond and say well how do you know it's experience of the holy spirit it's not the Holy Spirit experience. So what you're actually telling us is you have nothing else because you, you, you have nothing else to bring to the table except your experience, which is faulty because it's not been tested as the apostle says, test the spirits. They don't do that. There's no testing going on in Toronto. There was no testing going on. Barking and, and, and walk, rolling around on the ground like idiots. They obviously did not test the spirits. God have mercy. Uh, I, I laugh because it's so absurd. I just, I don't know what to do with that. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. The devils are mocking God's creation, God's image in these, uh, in these groups. Tragic. So they say, these groups say, the Orthodox are not true Christians because they, through the absence of this work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Oh, that's interesting. Let's see what the elder has to say. It is true that Christians should have consciously within himself the Holy Spirit. That's true. Because the Holy Spirit is not only made manifest through Gosulalia, however. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Let's hear what St. Paul says, friend. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, trust, that means, meekness, temperance, those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Do you see this speaking in tongues anywhere in those gifts of the Holy Spirit? Nope. Not listed. And when he does refer to it, he says there's greater gifts. These are not the, these are not the gifts that you should seek after, first and foremost. Um, so the gifts he referred to by the apostle are gifts that need to be attained by all Christians of every age Whereas that was given for the time. It was a particular need. And the circumstances brought that about. Just like when St. Basil and St. Ephrem, the Syrian, got together, there was a need. 
It was God doesn't do things. Here's a, here's, a, here's a principle. Here's a little principle. Write this down. Jot this down. When men can be consoled by human means, God uses those means. When men cannot be consoled by human means, God brings about divine means and consoles them. So the reason why we have we don't have divi- uh, divine consolation many times is because we have human consolation. So why do the saints forego the human consolation of eating, drinking, comfort? Because they want to have experience of the divine consolation. They want to have a total and 100% nonstop immersion in divine consolation. So another question for these folks in Toronto and all these charismatic groups would be, so how's the fasting going? How is the self-denial going? Where are these gifts of the Spirit? Let's see that. And then we'll talk about other gifts further on. To have those gifts, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, guess what? You don't have those unless you're working and being worked on by, the, by God to do away with the passions. In other words, you're an ascetic. You're struggling against the old man, putting them off. You're not living according to the flesh, according to the world, according to the world's ways and thoughts and, and uh, methods. So if you are somebody who has one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and during your work day you're cheating or you're lying or you're engaged in practices which are unjust, and then you go to church and you, you pray in tongues or you show up and you're a zealous member of the congregation, well, the presuppositions for the gifts of the Holy Spirit have not been met and the experience is going to be faulty. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit, fruit, joy, love, peace, those are the presuppositions for them, somebody to have the Holy Spirit within them. He has those, he has the Holy Spirit, according to St. It's, it's a sign that he has the Holy Spirit. Um, but it's all together, right? It goes together. It's not just one of those. Not, there are human virtues. In other words, not divine human. Not theanthropic. That one can say, look at this very virtuous man. He's struggling to fulfill the, the old law. But that is not the same as the gifts of the Spirit and the, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the, Holy, the spiritual life in the New Testament. Because those things are done in Christ and for Christ, those things uh, purify internally and they lead to Christ. So if, if one is just of his own doing, struggling and being virtuous, quote-unquote, but it's not for Christ and in Christ, well, it's not, it's not going to be an a authentic uh, manifestation of the Spirit of God and of the, of the gifts of the Spirit of God. It's going to be something wrong. There's going to be something not right. For those who have criteria. So the gift of glossolalia is not a common gift of grace, but something special and not given to everyone. So how can we consider it a precondition, a presupposition of salvation? Or this man is coming as many come and say, well, you don't have it, so therefore you're not being saved. How can you say that? That's not one of the gifts. It was only for a time. It's not one of the things St. Paul says all Christians have to have. And so how do you make it a litmus test? I love how people do this. They, out of context, they bring things into the church, like masks, for instance. You have to have a mask, otherwise you cannot participate in the Eucharistic assembly. When did that become... When did, where does St. Paul say that? Where did the Lord say that? Where did the, the council say that? Where did the Holy Tradition say that? 
when does this come a litmus test, a prerequisite for the participation in the Eucharistic Assembly? Or you might say, well, it's not the mask, it's obedience. But where's the obedience of the people who are telling you you have to have the mask to holy tradition, the holy fathers? You've got to show that as, a, as an expression of the church's tradition and life in the church, in the saints. You've got to show us the saints that are doing this. I was talking to a bishop here a few days ago, and it was very educational for me, but very tragic. And I had to go. I had to go to a diocese here. I think this is good. I think I'm going to share this with you because I think it's important for people to hear this. But uh, doesn't matter who it is, of course. But I had to go to a diocese to speak to somebody, and I and I came came there, and you know, as Greeks. Greeks do, you have to go bearing gifts, Greek spirit gifts. You don't go empty-handed. It's kind of a, if you ever do, it's a shame. You feel shamed. So, I, you know, I had something there for the bishop. And so I knocked on the door, and the doors were locked. And then somebody came out with a mask on and said, oh, uh, yeah, okay, put your mask on, then come inside. I said, oh, I don't have a mask. And they said, uh, okay, but you, uh, let me go get you one. I said, no, 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 don't bother, don't bother. Here, take the gift that I have for the bishop and tell him I'll call him. And I left. I said, I don't want to put the bishop in temptation. I want to be, I can't wear a mask. So, sorry, right, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll leave. And so I left. And after a while, I called the bishop. And he was, uh, he was angry at me for not coming in. And, you know, part of it was the Greek. We wanted to treat you and host you. We had, you know, but part of it was, obviously, I was not being... Uh, submissive to the rule they had there in the diocese and I was not going along with the mask wearing and all the rest and he started to, to yell as some bishops tend to do unfortunately uh, and um, you know you should have come here what do you, what you, who, do you what, who do you think you are and so I just you know whatever then we talked about the issue I wanted to talk about and then they came back again said you know you don't go to church without a mask you got to go to church with a mask I said oh lord I so bishop of assessors of the apostles was telling me this. I just it's tragic, but I and, and I said at some point I said, "Your your eminence, don't you shouldn't you respect the conscience of the other person if he doesn't want to put the mask on?" In other words, I was saying what we're talking about right here in this class. How do you make this a criteria? How do you make speaking in this special gift of tongues that happened for a time and is not one of the main or the listed. Uh, virtues and gifts of the Holy Spirit, how do you make that a prerequisite for life in Christ? How do you make anything that's not in the Holy Tradition a litmus test and a precondition? If the Lord has not revealed it as such, how do you do that? You can't go to church, he told me, if you don't wear a mask, you and your family. I said, well, what do the saints do? The saints do that. We know St. Paisios did, right? The great St. Paisios who lived in our, in our day here and not far from us. I said to him, we have to follow the saints. The saints show us the way. What did St. Paisios do? He said his, his disciples said he would never wear a mask. He would never keep a social distance. He couldn't imagine him going around cleaning his hands every five minutes or every hour. Why? Why wouldn't the saint do that? Because he has trust in God. He knows God is, 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 is above all. His works and has compassion and love, and he's not going to live in fear. He's not going to live like a lunatic going around all day in fear. 
and God brought us in, and God's going to, the day and hour of our departure. And at some point in the conversation, the bishop said, you know, I, you know, bishops get sick, they almost die, you know. I said, well, but that's, they didn't die. If they didn't die, that means that it wasn't their time. It wasn't God's providence. God's, God's above all his works. Anyway, I hopefully, hopefully you realize that that there is a spirit of delusion in the world and no one is exempt from it no 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 position in the church no no uh title is necess- is exempt from spiritual delusion uh and the question is why why does someone fall into spiritual delusion and fear and worldly way of thinking well um because in the time of peace, before the war broke out, they were not engaged in preparation for warfare. They were not, they were not wor- working according to the rules of engagement. As St. Paul says somewhere, uh, a soldier has to fight according to the rules and has to prepare himself accordingly. Uh, the ascetic life, in other words. We're, we're not living the ascetic life. We've been giving... We've been giving rights to the enemy somewhere along the way. Let's get back to our topic. Uh, all right, so that which has not been given to everyone cannot become a litmus test. They did not use, the apostles themselves did not use this gift apart from exceptional cases when they had a certain aim as on the day of Pentecost. So look at the presuppositions now. He's going to give us a summary. And here we are again, the word, the, the, the most famous word from this whole course, presuppositions. True glossolalia as a gift of the Holy Spirit can be recognized only when it is combined with the following presuppositions. It should be understood. There's a gift of translation for those who do not understand. Without this translation, the foreign language is babbling and lunacy lunacy, the Toronto blessing and every so-called blessing of the Charismatics and Pentecostals is lunacy. Uh, It was not given to the church forever, but for a time, it ceased to exist, essentially, for that purpose of mission, although we saw that it does exist occasionally, here and there, but not like a major event like Pentecost, Not, not, not in that way. Uh, but it, but according to God's providence, it does exist here and there, when in a small, you know, hidden way. It's for the unbelievers. It's not for the faithful. So there's no need for us to go around the church speaking gibberish. Uh, it was among the lesser gifts in the Church of Christ. And here I even said, see the Toronto blessing. So here's 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 something that would apply to the Toronto blessing. Listen now or every charismatic, quote-unquote, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is totally out of the question for speaking in tongues as the gift of the Holy Spirit to mean a delirium in a non-existent, incomprehensible language. For then it would not be speaking in languages, but in our own exclusive language. Moreover, it comes into clear contradiction with the chapter 2 of the Acts of the Apostles. The inarticulate voices, lunacies, incoherent utterances, which we often hear from the self-proclaimed speakers of tongues, very much resemble the scenes the idol worshippers would make before the idols of Dionysius. 
as well as with quite a few of the Montanists, the Gnostics, the Quakers and Shakers and Pentecostals, all of whom the true Church of Christ anathematizes. Interesting how he becomes a lion here, doesn't he? Our, 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 uh, our meek and wonderful elder becomes a lion. This is what happens to the saints, like St. Saint Spiridon slapping areas, or St. John of Shanghai and San Francisco calling down the anathemas on the Sunday of Orthodoxy. When in other in other contexts he's a he's a lamb he's the, the saints are lambs and love their brethren but when it comes to that which divides people from God and takes them away from the salvation then they become like lions and they call down the anathema which again anathema means lifting up anathema ana means to lift up it goes up something up right so it's a giving over to God it's a lifting up to God right. The church says, you are no longer a part of us. You're, God, you're in God's mercy. Help, God help you. Uh, so that's the anathema. Foreign to the Spirit of God is the speaking in tongues of those who think they are grace bearers and make bold to misinterpret the true glossolalia. So unfortunately, I've taken too long in our first chapter to get into much of this. But I mean, if you've read this chapter, it's pretty self-explanatory. I'm just going to blow through it here because I want to get to the questions. We've got 11 questions. Um, this is obviously talking about occultism and spiritualism and conversing with the dead, ne necromancy, right? Calling upon the dead to speak to them and having contact with the dead. These things are all demonic. They're rejected. Uh, they're not speaking with the dead. They're speaking with the demons and they're leading themselves and others into de delusion. And what's interesting here is that Every step of the way, the demons are fighting against trust in God and faith in God. And so they encourage this seeking into the unknown. They encourage this desiring to speak with the relatives. Where's my relative? Where is he? Is he in heaven? Is he? What's he like? I want to speak to my, my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, my wife, my child, whatever. Um, and they're, they're, they're not allowing and trusting in God. Uh, and that's a way to undermine faith right undermine trust uh blessed are they who have not seen and yet believed the, the lord says seek after the power of faith not the perception of our material eyes the demons instruct men to not be satisfied with the teaching of our savior rather to seek by every means to view with their sensible eyes that which is accessible only to the eyes of faith so the person who goes to magic, black magic, like in Africa, they have black and white magic. Very interesting book. If you have not read, the, read it and you're interested in this topic, you've got to get your hands on the book we published years ago, which hopefully we'll be bringing out soon, uh, The Apostle to Zaire, The Life and Legacy of Father Cosmas Gregorio, who was a missionary to the heart of Africa, Zaire, Congo. And he's got all kinds of interesting things in there about black and white magic. They're actually both demonic, of course. And they, they are two sides of the same demonic coin. And they bring about, they have people who support and work with the black magic, which is very destructive and kills people. Ultimately, it can kill people. And then there are, there's the so-called white magic, which is another uh, shaman or person who works with the demons, who comes and then drives away the black magic. And it's all just a game, a, a terrible, awful uh tragedy for human beings who, who are in the hundreds of thousands not millions of people who still 
believe it or not, in our day, in the middle of Africa, there are, I don't know if millions, but certainly hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in the, in the uh, bush of, of Africa there who are under the influence of the demons and black magic and white magic and all the rest. Now, don't think that there are not hundreds of thousands of millions of people in the first world, in, in America and in England, who are not slaves to the demons. Unfortunately, tragically, they are. And, the, and, and I would say phenomenon like Harry Potter. Uh, now, you might say, well, Harry Potter is just an innocent but Look, any book that introduces details of how to go about doing magic are not of God. You can tell me it's a great book to read for kids to learn. I don't know. It keeps them. She's a great author. Da, da, da. It doesn't matter. If the kids are being initiated into becoming uh, workers of magic and it's, it's real, it's not a fantasy, it does exist. Uh, this is the great tragedy and, 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 and the, the devil has pulled the wool over so many eyes that he doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. You can call on demons. It doesn't matter. What a tragedy. So uh, those who go to that, they're enemies of God. They make themselves enemies of God. All right? They're rationalists. They're disobedient. They're proud. And they're far from God, according to the elder here and according to the saints, uh, the church tradition. They believe in, in these fantasies and they draw, withdraw themselves from God and the teaching of our church. And he talks about Saul's example of this doing this exact thing, right? He was punished by God uh, to be killed with his own sword because he resulted the sorcerer's <clears throat> invocation of the soul of Samuel in the Old Testament. The invocation of the spirits of the dead is hateful to God. God considers this abomination one of the greatest revolts against his will. All right? Wizardry, ne necromancy, a charmer, a witch, consulter with familiar spirits. These things are also all, all terrible, terrible sins. Why? Because you're, you're making yourselves, make, once making himself a tool, a disciple of the demons. Couldn't get any worse than that. You're going to go straight with the demons you're going to you're in this life you're identifying with the demonic you're not just following after the passions which the demons are working to create and uh, to uh, to to um, manifest and to for you to cultivate and to live for but you're actually working directly with the demons and under the demonic spirit this reality of the next life is not news to us since we know it from divine revelation and as a matter of faith so we don't go to figure it out with the help of the demons. Um, obviously, we need to test the spirit, as St. John says. That's what we talked about in an earlier uh, lecture about the spirits. It doesn't mean just the demonic spirits, but ideas, movements. Uh, these things are all identified as spirits. In other words, they're Things that either draw us to salvation or not. They're either truth in ideas or lies. So they all have to be discerned through the grace of God. Um, so we're talking about major delusion here. Major plani, prelest. And so we do not listen to our dreams. We do not listen to our vi the visions we have. We don't pay attention to them. And listen to what he says here. St. John the latter says, whoever does not believe in visions and dreams is a spiritual philosopher. 
I've had people write me in the last month or two. I think some people who are on this course. Father, I had a dream. And, you know, it's very interesting. People have dreams, they come true. What does that mean? It doesn't mean really much of anything because the demons who have such experience, they can project, they can figure out what's going to happen through their experience. And they, they see what's being manifest in other places which we do not see, right? The demons work together with other demons. They see that your aunt's going to be coming for a surprise visit next week. And then they fill you with the idea that you are some special prophet or something because you figured out uh, that she's going to be coming for a visit next week. I mean, it, 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 they, they mock us by filling our head with proud thoughts. And then we become, we believe our thoughts. We, we believe we really are special. Uh, we listen to our dreams. We, listen, we, we, we believe all the visions we have. And then we fall into their trap and we become deluded. So whoever does not believe in visions and dreams is a spiritual philosopher, according to St. John of the latter. And also that when the demons of vainglory and pride tempt the weaker brothers with visions and dreams, they make them into prophets. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look at this. We've got certain brothers here in the monastery, or we've had in, the, in, in monasticism, they become prophets, quote-unquote. They think they're prophets because of vain and, and vainglory and pride, which led them there, and the demons tell them, quote-unquote, prophecies of the future. So that's what the ascetic tradition tells us. It doesn't tell us to go and trust our dreams. In fact, when you wake up and you have a dream, pay no attention. Pay no attention to your dreams. Live in reality. Dreams are not reality. Now, can God intervene for special times, special places? Very particular, very clear, overpowering evidence. And, and it says here, even so... We have things that God sends us and we reject them. God will respect that, our stance. He will not take it the wrong way. He will not say, oh, he's rejecting me. No, he will say, he will come again and again and again and he will make it absolutely clear that this is of God. So rejecting the visions and the dreams is, again, a spiritual philosopher and not a person who's rejecting God's will. Uh, these special things that happened, he talks about the special things that happened in the history of the church, Moses, Elias, John the Baptist, the news of the birth of Christ. These things happened by the will of God that testify and certify the immortality of their souls and the power to be revealed to men in exceptional ways. They do not support the prerogative of man to seek out contact with the dead. So that's not an excuse because you see that in Scripture to go doing that. Um, now the inquirer comes again with more delusion, and says, well, we call the supplication of saints and angels as practiced. Uh, wait, wait, that which we call the supplication. This is nothing else but the invocation of the righteous souls or communication with the dead. Again, he's saying this. And he says, look, I told you about Saul. It's not the same as necromancy at all. In calling upon the saints and angels, we do not have the intention or pretension of speaking sensibly with them of seeing them, hearing their voice, or of having them appear before us perceptibly in order to reveal uh, to us mysteries, which God has determined should remain hidden from men. So he said, look, calling on the saints, isn't this the same thing? Are we calling on the dead? No, it's not the same at all. We're not interested in, in the same thing. We're interested in having them pray for us. We speak to the saints and angels in our prayer by means of our mental, noeros eyes, could be intellectual eyes or spiritual eyes, and our faith without the need to see or hear them sensibly. So this is not the same thing as this demonic thing that you're talking about, all right? Calling on the saints is not the same thing. 
so anybody who prophesies and is not from God is a false prophet, is of the devil. They announce false visions, vanities, preposterous prophecies. That will that's happening in our day all the time, right? There's all kinds of false prophets. I remember this one. Uh, what's her name? Um, it's got a Greek name or something. Vula. What's her name? She was going around all over the world, uh, but she's a, she's actually a Uniate. I think she was from Syria. She's got a Greek name. She was going around to Antiochian parishes and stuff, and people were accepting her as. And she, I, there's now. I mean, I, I might be confl- I might be conflating two different people, but there was one in Syria that had a wonder-working icon, uh, but it started. She said it actually started having the myrrh gush out of her hands. She became like this mix of orthodox tradition with these these strange occurrences among the papal protestants anyway I, it's too too far fetched to get into it all but i remember that this one other one vasa that's what her name was vasa vasa you might have heard of her she uh she was going around some of the orthodox people even the patriarch of alexandria accepted her because i think she had some contacts with in egypt somehow she had friends she was deluded she was very deluded and proposing all kinds of things and unity with under the Pope and all kinds of things that, that obviously are not of God because they're not, they're not witnessed to by the saints. We have our measure. We have our measure. Now here, this is the last thing and I think we need to close it, fortunately. This is really important. Listen to what he says here. <clears throat> A little bit of water here. He says, they announce false visions, vanities, and preposterous prophecies relative to the condition of their heart. When they actually do tell us the truth, we should not believe it, since they do not say it with the aim of benefiting anyone, but rather from deceptiveness they seek to lead us into delusion. This is the, this is the so-called Pnevma Pithonas. Pnevma Pithonas. This is referenced in the Acts of the Apostles 16, 16 to 18, in the story of the Apostle Paul, in Philippi, with a girl with the unclean spirit of divination, that's the Pnevma Pithonos in Greek, is in the city of Philippi of Macedonia. Everything that the evil spirit said through her mouth was true, and yet, and yet, the Apostle Paul admonished her to keep silent and cast out the demon. So here is the spirit of the world today. It's so prevalent in the world today. And what is it? That they speak truth for an evil, uh, evil um, aim, right? Truth is used. And this is what the demon was doing with this girl. You know, one could surmise that she was supporting Paul's preaching in order to defame it because everybody knew that this girl was possessed or that hoping to gain the trust of the people so that when Paul left, then the demon possessed and the pagans could then bring him in delusion. So, yes, he, she was saying the truth, that Paul was a man of God, etc., etc., but it was totally nefarious and evil, the intentions. This is the Pnevma Pithos. It's in the world everywhere. You see it on television, half-truths, a portion of the truth. People come, you know, political parties come, and they, they're, they're obviously not of God. Uh, like Glo- Golden Dawn was one of them here in Greece, uh, connected to paganism and, and craziness, New World Order nonsense, and yet they present themselves as, eth- as philatists, ethnicists, uh, nationalist you know for the nation they were against all this globalism and everything and there were a lot of people who, who voted for them 
But you see, they use the truth of certain things in order to deceive people and bring them into delusion. And that's exactly what the demons do all the time today. So it's so dangerous spiritually. If you're not well grounded in the holy tradition, you can easily become deluded uh, by this pnevma pithonas, right? It's the, it's the same reference to the uh, ancient Greek practice of going down to Delphi and they would tell them uh, the, there would be an uh, oracle there, whatever, they would tell, tell them the future when they would come to, what am I going to win the war? And you remember, that, and then they would have an expression that could be interpreted this way and that way, depending on where you put the comma, you know. Um, I, forget the, I forget the historical example, which is really phenomenal, but something like, you know, uh, you will not be defeated or something. You know, it's, it's, it's just kind of a, like a riddle, and so there's truth in it, but depends how you interpret it and exactly where, you know. So I think it's where it's all, this, this idea of Pnevma Pithonus comes from. We could go in uh, more another time. I actually have a homily on this, I think. I gave it uh, down at Father Josiah's Trenum's Parish. So if you go to my podcast from Greece, Postcards from Greece, it's on the St. Cosmas website. If you go there, you can find that. It's uh, on the gospel the epistle of the day i think it's after pascha uh and i think it's actually in the title so you can find that if you're interested in more about that whole uh scriptural passage so we seek from god through the saints that which he deigns to give us for our salvation right that's the key he does everything for our salvation and we do everything for our salvation (laughs) we don't go around seeking knowledge which doesn't need to be known is not our business. It's not been revealed with psychics and shamans and all the rest. There are actually people, believe it or not, Greek Orthodox, I've had them come to me, who said, Father, I went to, I went to a, a, a palm reader. I went to a, a, sto- a fortune teller in New York City. Or where were they? A couple of people were in New York, I think. And I said, what were you thinking? What are you talking about? Yes, I, I was so concerned about my daughter. What will happen to her? No, no, bad idea. Don't do that. He says here what I said earlier, reject the vision and dream. God will respect it. He's not going to take it the wrong way. Um, then he talks about this foolish example of, well, isn't, didn't our Lord say that St. John the Baptist was Elias, so therefore Elias came back from the dead, so therefore there's a kind of reincarnation. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, obviously, that's not what the Lord meant. Uh, Elias will come in the second coming. It was not fulfilled with St. John the Baptist in that way, but he had the power. He had the, the presence. Uh, obviously, Elias appeared on the mount with Moses. So if he was to come in the person of St. John the Baptist, he wouldn't have appeared on the mount with Moses. Um, so anyway, I think that's, uh, that's it for this chapter. Or maybe we'll just, this, this is a summary here. We'll give you the summary and then we'll call it. All the spirit, the teachings of the spirituals are all anti-Christian, right? None of that. New age, uh, spiritualism, fortune telling, all this is, is, is anti-Christian. It's demonic. Our church teaches us that souls have been created directly by God. Number one. No circumstances can, under no circumstances can one speak of the pre-existence of souls. Two, bodies are creations of God, not of the angels. Three, the punishment of God is hell. The punishment, uh, not of God, sorry, the, the place of punishment is hell. 
The place where people choose to go, God does not send him there. We choose to go there through our love of the passions and love of untruth. That's called hell, in which the conditions are immutable, something certified by the divine words of divine revelation. So do not think people um, can come back from that state into this world, for instance. The demons cannot be saved because they don't choose to be saved, right? They've, they've become solidified, solidified as it were spiritually in their age-old choice of rebellion. There exists only one resurrection and return of the soul to the resurrected body, right? One resurrection. No one here can compel a soul, compel a soul to leave paradise or compel a soul to go to hell. Doesn't mean the prayers don't matter. It means we can't we can't compel someone, order them, force them. Um, someone might say that indeed the souls of the just are in the hands of God. However, the spiritualists in their meetings do not call upon the souls of the righteous, but of the wicked, who are not in the hands of God, but in Hades. Are the souls of the branded and accursed found beyond the supervision of God? What does St. John say? Fear not, or the Lord to St. John, Fear not, I am the first and last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of hell and of death. So, just as the souls of the righteous are in the hands of God, so too those of the wicked in the kingdom of Hades are also under the infinite and indescribable authority of God. And a brief summary again. They deny, they deny the dogma of the Holy Trinity, the spiritualists, the occultists. They speculate that God is not the creator. They say that Jesus is a higher spirit. Delusional. Arianism. Or, or worse. They believe that man is made of flesh encircled with the spirit. Uh, they, they say that salvation is accomplished with the evolution toward the good and with reincarnation, obvious delusion. Um, interesting that they embrace evolution, isn't it? Evolution, spiritual evolution. Um, that's of the spirit of the world. We're going to talk about evolution tomorrow night. Tomorrow night in our Fathers Here from Rose class, we're going to be talking all about evolution. So join us and see why evolution is not true and not of God, and it's part of the spirit of the age. The body of man is destroyed, but the shell and spirit is immortal. That's what they teach. So these are all heretical teachings, and the church rejects all of them. Oh